You know, sometimes you have to go through hell to get home. That literally happened to me about seven years ago. I was asked to go help a church in nowhere, Michigan. I mean, middle of nowhere. And on the way home, I took a route that caused me to literally have to drive through a city in Michigan called Hell, Michigan. And it was, a, it was getting toward evening, which made it even stranger. And it's just weird to drive through a city where as you come in, it says, welcome to hell. And as you leave, it says leaving hell, which is a better feeling, right? And of course, you can imagine they've got t-shirt shops and the whole nine yards going on in that city, but that's its real name. And I've reflected on that in the years since, and I thought to myself, you know, that's kind of a metaphor for life sometimes. It feels like you have to go through hell to get home. And in this series that we're about ready to bring to a close next weekend, as we've been looking at the book of Revelation, it's obvious that things get worse before they get better. And that brings us to a unique theme that we're going to look at this weekend, different from the other themes that we've been looking at, but one that I think is really important for us to hear. Because implied in Revelation, and implied really in all of God's word, is an idea that if we'll grab a hold of, I think, can alleviate a lot of angst that we feel living in our culture in these difficult times in our own country today. And so I'm going to be addressing some very real issues a little later on in the message, and I hope you'll see how this idea can give you a measure of hope and comfort and peace. So with that said, I want to start with the early 1900s, about the time of World War I. There was a big shift that occurred in the mindset of what was called, or is called, the knowledge class, to borrow another term that's often been used, the intelligentsia, which are just, you know, big $5 words to describe individuals who are looked to for the guiding, the leading, and the shaping of culture and politics, economy, etc. And the mind shift, especially here in the West in our country, which was an outgrowth of the Enlightenment period, was this idea that the biblical faith, Judeo-Christian values and beliefs, we're not really to be taken seriously. That as we move into the age of reason, as we advance in science and technology, we begin to realize that those beliefs, those things that we held to, God, Jesus, resurrection, heaven, etc., is more myth than reality. We, human beings, we're going to bring in the truth. We're going to change this world. We don't need that. And so the, the biblical faith began to be questioned. Until you get to about the 1960s, it seems to suddenly have just blossomed to where it's the overall mindset in the culture. And I would advance and say to you today that it is the lifeblood of our culture now to ridicule the Christian faith, to deny, to question biblical beliefs. You can look in different places of our culture to test that. One of the places is the media. Um, if you watch interviews or if you are watching a sitcom or a movie and there's a Christian character present, oftentimes they're portrayed as stupid, as ignorant, as naive. 
if not portrayed that way, they're portrayed as angry and vindictive. You don't get very often a positive portrayal. It happens, but not often, of, of those who hold to the fundamental beliefs of the scriptures. And that's just kind of the way things have come to be. In fact, if you have students who go to secular colleges and universities, at some point in time, though they may not disclose their followers of Christ, they will be ridiculed. At least they'll hear a lecture and hear a professor rail against biblical Christianity, the biblical faith. So why is it that our culture has become so hostile toward the Christian faith? There's a lot of ways to answer that. I want to answer it from a perspective that Tim Keller brings out. I think Tim is, is, is one of the finest examples of a pastor slash uh, theologian scholar. He's been called the C.S. Lewis of our days. I, I read him a lot. He influences a lot of my thinking and, and thoughts uh, because I think he's coming at a very relevant but very biblical perspective. And so he says that the, the, our, our line of thoughts fall on one of two tracks. He says, there are those out there who say that our Christian faith is just too optimistic. Now, when they say our faith is too optimistic, what they really mean by that is we're too Pollyanna about our faith. Our, our idea of a savior, of a resurrection, of a heaven to come doesn't, doesn't deal with reality. It was Karl Marx who said that religion is the opiate of society. And what Marx meant by that is, as opium is to numbing pain, it just masks the pain in our body. Religion masks the pain of our lives. And for Karl Marx, that pain was the suffering of the working class. And his point was religion masks, it's an illusion, it's an escape, but it doesn't help you really escape from reality. You still have pain, you still have suffering, you have difficulties. And so he offered a different savior. He said the savior of mankind is a political ideology, it's an economic ideology. And so the working class needs to revolt against their oppressors, which then became the, uh, the feeding ground or the ideology that drove communism, socialism, Marxism. But the unfortunate thing is, as people took that ideology up and revolted against their oppressors, soon the oppressed, the leaders of the oppressed, became the oppressors, the ones who they were leading. My whole point, though, is sometimes people look at Christianity and they just say, it doesn't deal with reality. You guys, you guys are stupid. You guys are believing in a fantasy. There's no solution outside of mankind figuring out the solution, him or herself. Then there are those who say, no, that's not the problem. It's not that Christianity is too pessimistic. The reality is Christianity is too optimistic. The reality is Christianity is too pessimistic. It's too pessimistic. And the point they make is that in terms of pessimism, Christianity is too degrading, biblical Christianity. It's too demeaning. Sin and gloom and doom and all the negative rhetoric and conversations and sermons that go with the Christian faith. Ah, oh, it's just, you know, sinners and ugh, it's just such a negative thing. There's a book of letters written um, many years ago uh, Keller refers to it. I tried to find it. I could not. Uh, but he mentions there's a letter in there written by the wife of a um, president of Harvard University. 
And uh, it was about the turn of last century when she wrote it. She wrote it to a friend of hers. Now, the president and his wife had kind of thrown off the church, thrown off Christianity. They weren't believers. But her friend, who's an Episcopalian, is a believer. And so she writes her a letter. And I want to I read to you what, what she writes. She says, my dear, do you actually every week get down on your knees and confess that you're a miserable sinner? Neither I nor any of my children will ever do such a thing. The idea that Christianity makes you get down and talk about your being a miserable sinner, how demeaning, how degrading. That's the problem with Christianity. It sees things as bad. It looks at sex as bad. It looks at life as bad. It's world negating. It's too pessimistic. Therefore, I want nothing to do with it. So let me ask you a question. When you think about the people that you rub shoulders with, and I'm not talking about other Christians necessarily, but, but unbelievers in particular, when you think about those people you rub shoulders with or you listen to or you watch, do you think they lean toward Christianity being too optimistic or do you think they would lean more toward Christianity being too pessimistic? And the next question is, is it true? Is it true that it's too optimistic or is it true that it's too pessimistic? Well, I've got an answer for you. It's true. Both are very true. Christian belief, based on the Bible, is extremely pessimistic and extraordinarily optimistic. See, that sounds like a contradiction. It's not. It's the truth. If you take a look at the Bible, read it carefully, you'll discover that it is both very extremely pessimistic about the human condition, but it's extraordinarily optimistic about God's solution. So what I want to do is I want to break those statements up and take a look at them. So let's start, first of all, with the idea that biblical Christianity is far more, far more pessimistic than any other philosophy or religion or thought that you'll come across in the world. We have a very pessimistic Bible. So let me talk a little bit about that. Um, I should tell you a little secret, by the way. I left home today and forgot my regular glasses. And I have a pair of drugstore glasses in my desk here at church. And I pulled them out. I hate wearing them. But I, I can't read tiny print if I don't read them. The problem is when I put them on, I can't. You're all a big blur. All right? So I don't like it when speakers talk like this. Okay? Just, I was always taught don't ever do that. I'm really trying hard not to do it today. But if I want to see you, I've, I've got to do something like that, okay? All right, I just had to get rid of that. You needed a mental break anyway, okay? <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about the pessimism of the Bible. If you look at how the Bible treats its characters, it's very pessimistic. Even the best, very pessimistic view. I mean, think about Noah. When Noah gets off the ark, I don't know about you, but I think that's a righteous dude. That is a good guy. And then he gets drunk out of his mind. And if you read the story, some nasty things happen. Not sure what they are, but I'm going to leave it there. Then you get to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. 
guess you include Esau in there if you want, but Isaac, or Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, kind of the forefathers of the faith. And, and you discover these guys are liars and deceivers. They, have, they struggle. They have, they have big issues in their lives. We're living with some of the consequences of Abraham's issues. And then uh, you move on the scriptures and you, you get to the judges and you get to the kings. Talk about a bunch of no good individuals, immoral, violent, abusive, introduced child sacrifice. You get to David, man after God's own heart, but then, you know, David commits adultery, then has the husband of the woman murdered, has a child out of wedlock. Then you get to his son, Solomon, who starts out really great, but then turns into a playboy, leads them into idolatry. Then you get to the New Testament. If you take a look at the disciples, even though art pictures them with halos over their heads, these guys were characters. They're egotists. They're competitive. They were jealous. On the night that Jesus is going to be betrayed, they're arguing about which one's going to be the greatest. One of them was a betrayer, and the other one was a denier. Actually, they all denied Jesus. They all ran from him when he needed the most. You get the Apostle Paul. Look at Paul. I mean, Paul was out to beat up, arrest Christians. He stands there while Stephen's being stoned to death. When Paul finally gets saved, at least for a little while as a Christian, he wasn't easy to get along with. Just ask Barnabas. Peter could be fickle, depending on what crowd he was in. Look at a lot of the epistles written in the New Testament. They're written to Christians who are behaving badly. You get to the book of Revelation, and what happens to Revelation? You have wrath, you have judgment, you have destruction. I find it all very refreshing. (laughs) Seriously, I appreciate the straightforward honesty of the Bible about the human condition. It doesn't dance around it. It's just laid there, very bare, very naked for us to look at. It's a picture of ourselves. I'm thankful for that. In fact, God speaks to the prophet Jeremiah in a passage that, if you're a believer, you may have read before. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. It says, the heart, the human heart, is deceitful above all things. Now, there's a lot of deceitful things in life generated by the human heart. But your heart, my heart, is deceitful above all things and beyond cure who can understand it. Do you know what that passage of scripture means? That passage means that your heart and my heart is so sinful it is capable of the worst sins. What do you think about that? I mean we hear about other people doing heinous things and we go I would never. Now you may never but you're as capable as they are. I mean, aren't you glad you don't act out on every thought that goes through your mind? At least the people next to you hope you don't. We are, like it or not, we are vile and we are wretched sinners. And so there's no other, there's no other philosophies, no other ideology that is as pessimistic as biblical faith, as, as biblical Christianity. Say, wait a minute, I, I can think of other ideologies, other philosophies who take a dim, negative view of humanity. Yes, that's true, but they will oftentimes do it with the perspective of they are wicked, those people are evil, that line of thinking is bad. 
I mean, Christians can be stereotyped that way. They're the problem. But whenever that's done, it's with this contrast. You're bad, I'm not, like the Pharisees. You're the ones, the problems. You are the cause of the problems in our world. If everybody was just more like us. See, for an authentic, sincere, believing follower of Christ, we too can look out and say, he's wicked, she's wicked, Wow, what they're doing is awful. But in the same breath, we say and we understand we're just as capable. If not by the grace of God, there go I. So it's a different perspective. It's one thing to say, you're bad, I'm good by comparison. It's another thing to say, you're bad, and you know what? I'm bad too, if it was not for the grace of God. We're both, we're all terrible sinners. Now that provokes kind of another question. The question it provokes is, so how is this supposed to be enlightening and uplifting to me today? I feel like you're adding to my angst. You are not taking away from my angst. So I, I was thinking about this and, and doing some reading about uh, some things that were written a long time ago. And then I realized, boy, it's so appropriate for today. I just got to modernize the illustration. So just for a brief few moments, I know it's going to make some of you nervous as soon as I say this, I want to talk about politics. I am not going to endorse a candidate or a party. That's not my purpose. I just want to talk in terms of what it's doing to us. By the way, there are a couple of passages of Scripture, because I, I fear someone may not be convinced that, that God really sees the human condition the way it is. So in Psalm 14, verse 2, it says, The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind, that includes you and me, to see if there are many who understand, excuse me, to see if there are any who understand and who seek God. Now, here's the conclusion after God looks down. It says, all have turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Goodness in God's terms of perfection. Isaiah 64, 6 says, all of us have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. Paul culminates in all of Romans 3, 23 when he says, for all has sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So I think the Bible is pretty, pretty sure it's not a good situation in terms of humanity. The Bible is very pessimistic. So I'm trying to share with you an illustration of how that's liberating and I'm picking on politics for a moment. In our country in particular, when it comes to politics, we always think in terms of, of an election, and oftentimes it's, you know, it's one of two candidates that will be elected. And normally what happens, and this has been the case throughout our political history, all right, not a commentary on now, but it's just, it's, it's what's been, it's what will be. When, when my candidate or your candidate gets elected, it's almost like a sport. It's almost like when the Vikings, the twins win. We're like, yay, my man, my woman won. My party won. Now things are going to be so much better. There's hope. Then the people who are supporting the candidate who lost, the party who lost, to them, it is the end of the world. It's all over. Our man, our woman didn't get in. Things are going to go downhill. We're in trouble until, until it cycles the other way around, right? And then everybody who thought the world was going to end now believes that everything's going to be great. We're going to usher in a new age. And the people who are in power now feel like everything's been taken away. 
Now, what's, what's wrong with that scenario for a believer, okay? If, if I'm talking to believers. What's wrong with that scenario for a believer? What's wrong is this. We're pinning our hopes on the wrong man. We're pinning our hopes on the wrong person. We're pinning our hopes on the wrong system, a human-oriented system. And what we forget is we are electing one of two or one of three or whatever it is, one of two terrible sinners like us, like us. I'm not telling you don't vote. That's not my point. I'm not telling you not to be involved in politics. That's not my point either. It takes great courage, and I admire those who get involved and try to stand for what is right. But I want to remind those of us who are Christians, we are followers of Christ. Let that sink in for just a moment. I need to let it sink in for just a moment. Because I think what I see happening, especially with, quote, evangelical, and you know, I struggle with that term nowadays. It's been so politicized. I think what happens with, with a lot of followers of Jesus this day is somehow subconsciously we've gotten caught up in all the, all the stuff that's going on in the airways and we, we in essence are becoming followers of, of people and, and parties and movements of men rather than the followers of God, the followers of Christ. So I, I like biblical pessimism because biblical pessimism reminds me don't put your hope in men. Don't put your hope in humanity because humanity is just, we're all just terrible sinners. What should we expect from humanity? What should we expect from the system humanity creates? My hope is in Christ. I follow him ultimately. That allows me then to treat humanity differently. But if I look to humanity for my salvation, it will cause me to become angry. It will cause me to become depressed or it will cause me to dance the victory dance. It will cause me to think I'm you know, better than others and become arrogant. And that's something we as believers have to watch out for, okay? Because here's what can happen to us. We can say, yep, I agree. I don't like any of it. It's all wicked. It's all bad. And we do, what we do is we step back from it all and we, and we circle the wagons and we stand in our little circle and we go, what a bad world, what a bad party, what a bad group, what a bad bunch. And at that moment, when that happens, you know what it's a sign of? When you start thinking that way, it's a sign that you're not pessimistic enough. Because all of a sudden, you're starting to think of yourself being better. That was the whole problem with the Pharisees. They, they, the Pharisees separated themselves from the people, saw themselves as being better than the people. The moment you start, and I start thinking, I'm better than, than my enemy, I'm in trouble. How can I love my enemy, as Jesus says I'm supposed to do, if I think I'm better than my enemy, right? I don't have to like what they do. I don't have to love what they do, but I, I have to care deeply for their souls. Now, there's a, there's a wonderful principle that, that I, I found so helpful in studying this, and it's a passage of Scripture I've, I've used before, but never thought about it this way. It's found in John chapter 2, and you almost, you almost run by it if you're not careful. It's one of those verses that couple of verses that you just kind of skip by if you're not careful. It's found at the end of John chapter 2. It's well worth writing down or looking up, and I'm giving you enough time to do that. John chapter uh, 2, John chapter 2, and verse 24. Jesus has been surrounded by a whole crowd of people, all kinds of people. They all want something from him. They want to be healed. They want to be fed. They're all very interested in Jesus. And look what it says. And this is early on in his ministry. Look what it says in verse 24. John chapter, 20, uh, John chapter 2, verse 24. It says, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them. 
for he knew all people, right? So it's not just this, this bunch of people around him. He says he did not trust himself to them because he knew all people. For, and that means of all times, including you and me. What does he know? Verse 25, he did not need any testimony about mankind. Nobody needs to stand up and say, let me tell you what people, you know, humanity is really like. He already knew what humanity is like. Listen to how it ends. For he knew what was in each person. Now tie that back to Jeremiah 17, verse 9. What is in each of us? A heart that's so deceitful, I don't even know the depth of my own wickedness. Therefore, he would not trust himself to them. And yet, he died for them. And yet, he sacrificed for them. And yet, he fed them, and yet, he loved them. That's supposed to be you and me. I don't trust humanity. So I know what's in humanity. I know what's in me. But I don't withdraw from humanity. I sacrifice for humanity. I serve humanity. I love humanity. Because I don't expect much back from humanity. I'm pretty pessimistic about humanity. I'm surprised, I'm startled, I'm blessed when good things happen, but I know what the heart of men is like. So therefore, my help is not conditioned on what I get back. Do you see how healthy that is? Because the minute, the minute I start serving and loving you because I expect something back, I'm gonna be terribly disappointed. I'm gonna become, I'm gonna become um, uh, upset, I'm gonna become angry, I'm gonna become cynical. But as long as I go, yep, that's, that's, that's my brother, that's my sister. We're all in the same situation, but I've received grace. And because I have experienced grace, I want them to experience grace, then, then I can sacrifice my life. Remember what Jesus said on the cross? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. How do you get to that place unless you understand what humanity is really like? So I'm okay with biblical pessimism. I think it works. I think it's right. And it leads to something pretty Strange. When we understand why the Bible is so extremely pessimistic, we will finally experience what it is, we'll finally experience why it is also extraordinarily optimistic. When we understand why the Bible is extremely pessimistic, the sinful human condition, we'll finally experience why it is also extraordinarily, extraordinarily optimistic. When I realize hope is not found in men, but hope is found in God, through his son, Jesus Christ. Optimism rises. Now, the optimism I'm talking about that comes through relationship with God through Jesus Christ is not what the world means when it talks about optimism. When the world talks about optimism, when we talk about optimism in the American culture, we're not talking about global, we're not talking about global optimism. If optimism is wealth, most of the world, most of the world has no wealth. Most of the world's in poverty. There is no global optimism. If, if optimism is about living in a house that's warm in the winter, cool in the summer, if it's wearing good clothes, multiple sets of clothes throughout the week, and having a full stomach, most of the world lives in rags. Refugees are crowded in little lean-tos barely have a place to exist, and people are starving around the world today. It's not optimism. If optimism is an education and having a meaningful job, 
There are all kinds of people in the world today that wish they could read and write, who wish they could get a job, would be given a job, but are unable to. If optimism is all about justice and equality, most of the world experiences injustice and inequality, racism, bigotry, girls being sold into the sex trade, abuse that's happening all around the world, even at the hands of capitalists who benefit from the profit, but the people who are producing their profit are suffering greatly as a result of it. It's an unjust, unjust world. It's a terrible world. What the world calls optimism isn't optimism. The world's optimism just, it just isn't. It just isn't. So you know what happens is people then start finding other ways to deal with it. And one of the ways to deal with it, they'll just say, look, we live in a rationalistic world. We live in a world, there is no God, there is no hope. It's all about evolution. You're a biological machine. You're going to die someday, and that's the end of it. That's just, that's just the way it is. Now, if that's true, and when you accept that mindset, that ideology, then it really is the survival of the fittest. And if it's survival of the fittest, your rights really don't matter. What matters is what I need to get ahead, my rights. Which means we've got to create some kind of illusion out here, some kind of lie that we get everybody to believe in so we don't all, you know, kill each other off. It kind of makes you wonder why we're so violent in our culture right now, doesn't it? How much does that have to do with our mindset and our, and our theology or lack of theology? The other option is to say, okay, listen, there's something out there. We don't know what it is, some force, some power, and we're all trying to connect to it, and and everybody's religion is some avenue, some road that's eventually going to lead to that source of power, probably an impersonal source of power, but that source of power, whatever it is. And my question is, who is the person that decided that that's the way it works? And now I got to live by their view, their perspective, that that's how it works? Wouldn't it be great if God just tore the canopy open and appeared and came to us and said, look, none of you got it right. Let me tell you, here's how it works. Here's who I am. And isn't that what the Bible says God did? If you read the Bible carefully, it's really hard to argue with it because of how, it, how realistic it is, how true and how honest it is about us, how it begins to so make sense. Our optimism is found in God disclosing himself, our optimism is found in God declaring who we are, what our situation is, but what he's done to change things for us. And if we'll trust his son, that's where optimism comes from. That's where joy comes from. The joy and the optimism that God is going to work things out. See, I think there's a memory trace in all of us. I really believe this in my heart. I think there's a memory trace in every human being, even the atheist, so they can douse it out there's a memory trace there that says something's not right with the world. This is not the way it was meant to be. It's supposed to be different. That at one time it was peaceful. At one time there was joy. At one time there was no violence. And we so desperately want that. The problem is we keep trying to arrive, it, arrive at it in our own way in, by being our own gods. And the Bible says that that's what we're going to try to do and it's not going to work and it's going to culminate in some really bad stuff. But the Bible also tells us we put our faith in Christ, Eden will reappear someday. We will be where God wants us to be. We will experience what God always intended for us to experience. So turn to Revelation chapter 21 for our passage this morning. And 
Some of you are thinking to yourself, man, that's the longest introduction I ever heard to a sermon. <laughs> and you only have three minutes left. But actually, it was kind of a sermon backwards. Now Revelation 21 makes a little bit more sense. We're going to explore it next weekend. Listen to what it says. Then John John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. Sea there probably stands for violence and turmoil. I saw the holy city of the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I don't know about you, I get excited reading those words because I believe them. How much of this is literal, how much symbolic, I don't know. But listen, it's better than what can be described. And I heard a loud voice on the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. When I read that, I think of the, the verse in Genesis where it says that God was walking in the cool of the garden and called out Adam. Remember, Adam had rebelled and sinned. God has always wanted to be with his creation, with you and with me in particular. Verse 4. And let me go back, read verse 3. And I heard a loud voice on the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He was seated on a throne and said, I am making everything new. Now, listen carefully. God has already started making everything new. It's not just the future. He started making you new and me new when, when we came to know Christ in our life. At the cross, that new work began. And when I received Christ, he begins to change me from the inside out until one day I'm finally complete. So it's already started. Then he said, and I love this, listen carefully. Then he said, write this down for these words are what? Trustworthy and true. This is reality. This is no illusion. This is what we're moving towards. This, was what, this is what will be realized someday. This is optimism. And this is what we live for. And until that day comes, we don't withdraw from the world. We just don't trust the world. And because we don't trust the world, because we don't trust man's systems, we're free to minister to the world. We're free to sacrifice the world. We're free to love this world. We're free to feed the poor, to clothe the naked. I mean, to take care of the poor, clothe the naked, feed the hungry, to help liberate those who are oppressed. We're free to take this new work that's begun in us and begin to share it in such a way that people literally begin to experience the newness that will be someday. Do you get it? And that's how we have to live and that's how we have to think in these days of turmoil. Let's pray. Father God, we so oftentimes sing about amazing grace As I pondered that song this week, Lord, it it reminds me of this theme. It, It carries with it the pessimism I once was lost. The pessimism of being wretched sinners and and it moves us into the optimism of 
but your grace, your amazing grace has saved us, that chose us, that loved us, that sacrificed for us. That leads us into freedom. Lord, I pray that you would uh, use these thoughts to stir in our hearts and our minds, Lord, a desire, Father, to live optimistically in a very pessimistic world because our optimism is wrapped up not in what man can do but in what Christ has done. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.